For the week of Wednesday, September 5th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk about how to deal with overwhelm in the age of Trump with the founder of the Trauma Stewardship Institute, Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. She is author of the new book, The Age of Overwhelm, Strategies for the Long Haul. Lipsky says it's important for activists to recognize when we're overloaded, especially when we're trying to fight to stay ahead of it. It doesn't matter how much acupuncture you're getting. It doesn't matter how many times you work out a day. You just can't. You can't keep up with it. That's where our system then can become overwhelmed. We also have our weekly calls to action with Stephen Wilhelm, and we will hear about a production of a David Mamet play in the Bay Area being staged to raise money for congressional candidate Andrew Jans, who's running to unseat Devin Nunes. That's all ahead, so stay with us. We are now nearly 21 months into the Trump administration, and for those of us in the Indivisible movement, it has been often a challenging time emotionally. Uh, Speaking for me personally, at times I have dealt with burnout, frustration, depression, rage, and a sense of general overwhelm. And so as we now enter the critical phase of what most of us see to be the most important midterm of our lifetimes, I thought it'd be a good idea to check in with somebody who might help us to address some of these emotional challenges so that we can keep bringing our best selves to the fight. And so we are joined now by Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. She is the founder and director of the Trauma Stewart Institute, and her recent book is called The Age of Overwhelm Strategies for the Long Haul. Laura Vandernoot Lipsky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for all the work you you and Indivisible are doing. Well, you know, related to that, uh, people are doing a lot. And I do want to talk with you about how activists specifically can address the issue of overwhelm. But I think it'd be instructive to hear a little bit about you and your personal story first. Um, So you spent the early part of your professional career working with survivors of child abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, natural disasters. Why were you initially moved to get into that line of work? Oh, that's a great question. Um, at the time, I didn't understand or know about the co- the concept of trauma mastery, but I would say um, it was both a combination of, you know, how I was raised and the ethics my mom instilled in us and those values that we grew up with in terms of repairing the world, help trying to you know, work for social justice, work for environmental justice. My mom really instilled that in us at a very young age. In terms of the trauma mastery piece, um, one of the things that we see for many people who get involved in any sort of helping or repairing, uh, you know, pitch a wide tent there, is that many of us go into this knowingly or unknowingly because we're trying to reconcile something from back in the day. Hmm. So I think that certainly was also part of what drew me into that, I mean, I, you know, I was 18 and I was spending the night in homeless shelters and uh, volunteering a huge amount and then getting into the work, as you said. So, you know, it, it's it wasn't it, it was curious in terms of like, wow, what's what's all this about? Um, and then it took me several, several years to really understand that concept of trauma mastery. And, and when we go in again, knowingly or unknowingly with an intention of, of trying to sort something out, trying to reconcile something, trying to make something right from back in the day. And, you know, that, that was stuff that had gone on for me, uh, during my childhood. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like you got into it for very personal reasons and also because you're a, a, a very compassionate person and you have a great depth of feeling. You talk about how that all kind of built up and backed up on you and you had what you describe as a, a psychotic break. Um, can you can you talk about what happened there? Yeah, I mean, near psychotic break is probably is 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 more accurate. And what I mean, what happened for me was that, you know, I had a number of things transpire earlier in my life, and then I went into this work. And when one is eighteen, and when one is in some of these movements, you know, you can work eighty hours a week, ninety hours a week, a hundred. I mean, there's when you have that stamina and you have that passion and you have you're surrounded by all these other folks who have that. And for me, I didn't have kids at that time and I didn't have any other outside commitments. So we were working all the time and we were working in a whole range of social justice, environmental justice, all sorts of things. So a lot of passion, a lot of commitment, huge amount of dedication, zero awareness of how we were going to sustain ourselves or any of the movements we were a part of. It wasn't something that was talked about. And if it was near me, I should say, if it was talked about in any of the realms I was in, so any, any of the work I was doing, uh, if it was talked about, it was talked about really from a place of, um, you know, a deficit, right? So if you're not tough enough and if you're not cool enough and if you're not committed to your cause enough, then you talk about it. But otherwise, if you are cool enough and tough enough- and You just suck it cause, up, basically. You are going to suck it up, right? right? So one can only be exposed to so much for so long before there's a rupturing, before there's a hemorrhaging out of some kind. And the way I talk about it now uh, with folks in all sorts of fields is, what conditions can you put in place to metabolize what you're being exposed to so you never get near a place of saturation individually or collectively? So your organization doesn't become saturated. Your institution doesn't become saturated. Your community doesn't become your movement doesn't become saturated. So for me, I didn't, there was none of that awareness at all. And it just was, you know, accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. And then I had this near psychotic break where I just it, it was such little self-awareness of how bad things have gotten for me, just in terms of my outlook, my perspective on the world. Um, and so that's how then I came, I'd done trauma work all the time. And then this is how I came into doing this work on vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, and then overwhelm uh, is just starting to talk about that really, really freely and openly. Like, wow, I am losing my mind. Mm. Um, and I think, for many people that resonated. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and that's really what your book is about. And I, I think there's so much in there that is so instructive for people. And that's why I asked you to speak with us today. Um, and so I want to unpack a lot of that, but I think it would be a good idea for us to just outline some of our terms first. So we talk a lot about overwhelm and trauma. Let's define that. First, what is meant by overwhelm? So when I talk, I mean, certainly I'm not defining this from a clinical, sure. for this conversation, we're not talking about it clinically. But for the con- in the context of your book, what do you mean by yeah, overwhelm? Yeah, I mean, when I'm looking at overwhelm in the context of the current work I'm doing, it is where one goes from a place of being able to metabolize what you're experiencing, metabolize what you're being exposed to, that what you are exposed to, there's no tipping points within you where you're getting to a point of like, I don't have capacity, I don't have any reserves. I am so exhausted all the time. I'm maxed out. And then I become cynical and then I become numb. Right. And then I start, then my conduct 
speech, all of that starts becoming less than impeccable, should we say, right? <laughs> so it's where you're it's where when you're not overwhelmed, you're really able to, you know, you move in between your sympathetic nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system, you have capacity, right? You're able to, you know, many traditions talk about this, that you're able to really kind of bow deeply both to the suffering, also the beauty, you know, you're able to see the beauty, you're able to take in the beauty, you can tolerate sitting there and watching your kid's soccer game and not feeling like, who are you to sit and watch a soccer game while all these horrors are happening over here, that, that you have some you know, equanimity, right? You have some space for everything. And what happens when we're not able for whatever reason to keep up with that, like when, when your system, I mean, sometimes the suffering, just either the depth of it content wise or the magnitude and the frequency is just too, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much acupuncture you're getting. It doesn't matter how many times you work out a day. It doesn't matter how much kale you're, I mean, you, one, you just can't, you can't keep up with it. That's where our system then can become overwhelmed. Right. And then when we move into trauma, we look at something that again, not a clinical definition, but something that really fundamentally transforms your worldview. Um, it's very personal. Of course, it's completely subjective. What I might find traumatizing, you might feel like it's Wednesday morning. Right. So it's a good place for humility and just having a beginner's mind for all of us, because, again, it's, it's a very personal experience and it's a, it's a very subjective experience. And there's some people who are not feeling any overwhelm right now. And then there's a lot of people who, you know, many of us feel like we're barely functioning because it's just, even even with everything we're doing to tend to it. It is it is so hard to take all this in and move through it in a meaningful way without pulling in numbing and disconnecting and detaching and distracting and everything else. You know, you touched on something a, a moment ago, but I just want to go a little bit deeper. Um, in the book, you talk about managing exposure to trauma or stress whenever possible, and then, mm -hmm. uh, in your words, metabolizing that exposure. Mm -hmm. What tends to happen when we don't metabolize something fully? You say we get saturated. You say we hemorrhage. What, what do you mm -hmm. mean by that? Part of what I mean is that there is a way that we are at capacity and then we're over capacity. And so you can, you can feel a sense of like, we don't do well as humans being in an overwhelmed state. And now for a short amount of time, your fight, flight, freeze response can kick in. And, you know, if everything's working really well for you, it kicks in and then you move out of that place that you're not walking all around all the time in a fight, flight, freeze response. You're able again to move really readily in between sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system. You kind of put the brakes on, you put the gas on like a hybrid driving situation. But what happens if we become saturated, if what you're being exposed to and what you're in, what you're living, if it's too, if it's just too much, even if you don't believe in spirit or soul or any of that, but just think about just this in terms of neurophysiology, that you can't move this through you and it is backing up within you and you're carrying it in your kidneys and your liver and your spleen and, and throughout your nervous system. Then what can happen is we lose that ability to do that really smooth gear shifting. So then we're moving through our days in that fight, flight, freeze response. Right. And so this is where, you know, this is where the, the woman I worked with, who was a public defender in Brooklyn, who had like 300 people on her caseload. She did all this incredible work every day. And she said to me, I literally got on the subway today and like deliberately closed the subway doors on somebody. Just mm -hmm. She's like, I, I can't take it anymore. Right. So that's where then you're in this fight, flight, freeze where you are. You're acting in that way. You're tripping on your kids. 
right? You're just, you, you don't even recognize yourself anymore. And those are some of the signs to watch out for, right? That, that you're in Absolutely. overwhelm. Right, right. That you're in overwhelm and that you, and, and part of what we lose in overwhelm, right, is, is we lose a sense of humility. We lose a sense of being curious, like you're not fascinated by anything. You're just you're just like if somebody will say something, you'll just be like F- you. You don't even hear what they said, but you're just like no. I'm pretty sure my response to that is F- you, right? And you're so you're not curious. You're not humble. You know your shoulders are up by your ears the entire time. Your jaws tense the entire time. And I think the other piece with this that is important to remember is as humans, many of us, it's so intolerable to to feel all of this. So what a lot of us do is reach for anything that can help us numb out. Right. So there's the classics, you know, but even if you're not engaging in cocktail hours and getting high and all of that, many of us, and certainly many of us are activists, what we do is we'll just work more. Mm. We'll just move more quickly. We'll just bring more into our day and we'll just gear. I mean, that's not the only reason we're doing that, but many of us do reach for adrenaline, right? In addition to any of the other ways we might numb out. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, numbing out. I mean, I, I really want to get into that because you have a lot of important things to say there. But one of the ways that you talk about mitigating overwhelm is in controlling what we can and letting uh-huh. go of what we can't. And we hear this a lot and maybe even getting beaten over the head with it. Uh, yeah. But uh, and I think this is very pertinent to activists. You talk about the difference between what is within our individual control and what's within our collective control. And this uh-huh. is an important distinction, as I say, for activists, because we work collectively. So explain what you mean by that. So I think it's helpful to acknowledge that there are a number of things in all of our lives that are that are absolutely out of our control. Right. And so there are these massive things that are happening federally or statewide, even locally. So there's all there's all the government pieces. Many of us are in workplaces or in school settings where there is a lot that is out of our control. And then with what's unfolding nationally and internationally. All right. So that alone, I think a lot of people can just start short circuiting there. Okay, so then we want to look at, Okay, well, so some of that's out of my individual control. However, if I get into a collective body, then some of that might move more into a, a place of collective control, because that's that's where I think kind of that desperate times, desperate measures approach of just like, is now a time? Do you have the capacity right now in your life to, you know, serve on your child's PTA? Do you have a time to take on three more volunteer responsibilities at your church or synagogue or mosque? Like, do you have the time? Is this the time you want to sign up and go do that as well, right? That you're every day you're thinking, and it is a daily practice. Do I have, not just do you have the capacity because again, so many people, including activists, have a tremendous amount of stamina and will override our nervous system, right? right? So we actually don't have the capacity, but we're like, I'm fine. Like, give me some cold brew coffee. I'm good to go. Like, here we go. <laughs> How much matcha can you drink in a day? So it's, it's not just that you can do it, but part of what we look at is how can you engage every day in a way that first and foremost, you're not causing harm. And so that's part of where we want to look at the decision-making around what's in my control Right. And how can I do that really, really well, both to make sure I'm not causing harm and I'm contributing skillfully in whatever way I choose. Right. And then how do I be very discerning about not ruminating, perseverating or engaging in things that aren't in my control that are eroding me? Some of that might be what news you're watching. 
right? What media you're exposing yourself to, all of those things. Yeah. And so one of the things that you talk about uh, that, you know, people who are in overwhelm are prone to is hypervigilance, and that gets into the news cycle. Um, yeah. And, you know, let's talk about how we deal with the news cycle, because there is so much outrage and sadness yeah. and frustration and helplessness that a lot of us can feel around that. Um, right. And, you know, you talk in your book about how people feel like if they stop monitoring world events that they're not being, quote unquote, good activists. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, my friend Chris Petzold, who is a leader in the Indivisible Movement, asked, uh, how do we stay informed without wallowing in it? Which I think is a great way of uh-huh. phrasing that question. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Well, again, I think this is a place that I think any approach that we can infuse with humility uh, uh, in this part of the conversation as well, because there are some people where their lives may really depend on them staying up to date on everything that's happening, whether it's with immigration, whether it's any number of things. So acknowledging for many people, it is a privilege to be able to step away from it. And I I work with a lot of those folks who are like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, we actually need to know what is happening all the time from a place of like our lives and preservation and all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now with folks who that is their reality, then we spend a lot of time having conversations about, um, you know, how can you, how can you do that in shifts? Right. So if you, again, if you get a collective body there, you're going to take Monday, you're going to take Tuesday, you're going to, you're going to do, you're going to be on call for it, but you're not, you're, all of you are not going to do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there's still ways to get creative. That's a way that you can, pull some things into your control, even amidst that what's not out of your control, just again, from another la- layer of self-preservation, that you're not exposing yourself to that, just that the heinousness all the time. Okay. Now, if that's not your reality, and then you're somebody who you enjoy listening, or you feel like you should listen, or you feel a sense of obligation, again, I think you're asking yourself every day, can I do this with no harm coming to me? And I think many people would say, <clears throat> with so much of the news, no, you can't. I mean, there, there's just so much vitriol. There's so much toxicity. Uh, there's it, it. That is a very, very easy place where you see people go from maybe managing okay to being mm. completely overwhelmed. Yeah. So I think one of it is having some accountability about like how do I define what it means to be responsible? How do I define what it means to be engaged? How do I define what it means to be helpful? Right? We ask a lot. Just the kind of phrase like to what benefit. Like to what benefit is it to have like the news on in the kitchen while you're preparing dinner for the kids to be, I worked with this incredible hospice nurse who talked about how it just took her such a long time to realize she was commuting. She worked very rurally and she was spending so much time listening to the news. And then she'd arrive, you know, at the bedside of somebody who's dying and their loved ones. And she just, she said, you know, she just did not have her A game anymore because she was just exposed to this for hours on end while she's driving And then she was trying to go do this incredibly sacred work of helping somebody transition. She's saturated, as you've said. I mean, that that sounds like textbook saturation. Yeah. Yes. So I think there are some ways. I mean, what some people do is they'll read about it instead of listening to it. What many people do is don't watch it but either listen to it or read about it. What some people do is they have their very trusted podcast, you know, you all, right? Pod Save America. There's a number of people where you 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 kind of know, okay, I can count on, here's what I can count on here. For a lot of people, it helps to have some, not to diminish anything or belittle anything, right? But that you're going to balance it with some humor, 
right? Somebody who you have some kind of trust in. And you know, if you listen to that or Trevor Noah or whatever it is, you're going to get the amount of information that, that you need, right? For what's helpful for what you can actualize. So you can be serving in the way you want to serve. And it's without, we would hope, you know, the just seeding hatred, the contempt, the vitriol to say nothing of the misinformation and the disinformation. Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole other source of, of outrage there. But, you know, what I hear you saying is, you know, strike a balance that works for you, uh, yeah. which is challenging because these things affect us on an emotional level. And, you know, the reason why a lot of us got into activism is because we care. You know, we believe in fairness and justice. Um, and you brought up something that can go along with that, and that's feelings of obligation. And, and I think this is particularly pertinent for activists because this is another place where we can be vulnerable to guilt, uh, this feeling that we're not doing enough. Uh How do you address that? Yeah. I think that part of what is so important for us to remember is there is a time and a place for grieving and for mourning and for letting our hearts break and our minds be blown and our spirits feel annihilated. Like there, there is, there, it is, I think it is critical that we are allow ourselves individually and collectively the space to be able to grieve and mourn and kind of walk through that fire. I think you can do that without wallowing, as you said. I think you can do that without getting into any kind of a, you know, un- unhelpful, we're being persecuted place. I think it is being able to acknowledge the rea- you know, people say, wake up to the present moment, acknowledge what is unfolding and acknowledge what is happening. Okay. I think if we do not allow ourselves to go to those places, and this is where mindfulness is so helpful and so many yeah. traditions are helpful, being able to say like, here's me, I feel guilty. I cannot go to another March this weekend. And, and I feel so guilty about that. And I feel like I'm betraying. Okay. And, and so what, what would practitioners say of so many traditions? They'd say, all right, so acknowledge that. So there you are. But just because you feel that way, that doesn't mean then there's a causation of I'm going to like, however, you know, spend less time with my kids or take my kids who are my kids who are saturated, you know, one's kids who are completely maxed out, right? Because of everything we as parents are exposing our kids to as well. And I'm going to have them go to another march. So you can feel something without it translating into conduct that might not be helpful for that time. That might now, it might be helpful another time, right? I mean, you're not trying to like wipe away all, I mean, guilt is like a portal into behavior change is one thing. But for so many of us, it's not like 2018 is the first time any of us felt guilty. So I think that's what you want (laughs) to look into. Like, what were the messages I got back in the day? How was I raised, right? What did all the things I was, you know, whether it was your school or your coach or your religion or your spirituality, so you want to look at what it's kicking up for you. And also same thing, you know, guilt, anger, any of these, as we say in early childhood education, any of these big feelings, I think we want to be able to look at them really very honestly and head on and be able to say, okay, I'm feeling that. What is that about? And also what choices can I make in this moment to not cause any harm? Well, you're talking about responding there instead of reacting. And, you know, you're, uh-huh. you're talking about mindfulness and, and you bring up uh, meditation in the book. Uh-huh. And, and this is something that I know uh, a lot of people grapple with. Um, I will just say from my personal experience, I was somebody who was an infrequent meditator, maybe for like the 
last 25 years, and I never noticed any results at all. But Mm -hmm. maybe only over the last three months that I've started doing it every single day, that's been the thing that's made the difference. Um, And I've noticed that with the daily practice that you get to a place where you can kind of observe those sorts of emotions that you're talking about, the anger, the guilt, the, you know, the the searing rage that a lot of us feel at the news cycle. And you can sort of observe them without feeling like you need to react to them. You can choose your response. Yeah, beautifully said. Beautifully said. And that's where, of course, I mean, this is where we look to every, I mean, this is where you're looking to Desmond Tucci and you're looking to Mandela and you're looking to Victor Frankl. You're looking at all these folks who came before us and that's what they talk about, right? Is that we can always choose our response, even if sometimes that's only an internal response. Sometimes that's what comes out of our mouth. Sometimes it's there, there's a whole continuum of this. But I think that's where we want to make sure that we remind ourselves we do have agency within us, right? And and the other piece is to remind, remember with what you're talking about is that we cannot be dismantling oppression out there while replicating oppression within ourselves in terms of how we are or are not taking care of our health. We can't be like employee of the year out there, activist of the year out there, if we're destroying our family, right? And the other thing is, like, everything, all the good that we're doing out there, we also want, as Desmond Tutu said, your means being consistent with your ends. So we want to make sure that we have right speech, right conduct, right action. We want to make sure we've got some A game with each other. And again, when we get to that place of hemorrhaging out, you might be spectacular, with the activism you're doing, and then your movement itself is is facing a lot of messiness, right? Or you might be spectacular, you know, leading your organization, doing whatever you're doing, and your kids never see you, your partner never sees you. Right. And then, of course, there's our health, which a lot of us are just like, whatever, 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 you know, until your health kicks into such a degree that you're not saying whatever anymore. And that's why we always want to be really thoughtful about, again, that doing no harm preemptively and proactively. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you, that gets into issues of self-care. And that's something that we hear very frequently, almost like a, a mantra. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that's related to something that you touched on earlier, which is, you know, when you hit that point of overload, uh, it's OK to check out sometimes mm-hmm. uh, as long as, you know, you're not doing harm to yourself as you're, you know, you're not, say, drinking three bottles of wine or whatever. But say, you know, binge yeah. watching Netflix uh, is the example that you give in the book and that that's fine as long as you do it mindfully while you're checking out. So talk about that. Yeah. And I think, so with that piece, so much of what we're trying to go for is not get, we don't want to get in that binary kind of collapse analysis of good, bad, right, wrong, any of that. Part of it is simply having awareness, right? So even if the awareness, if you know you are going to be on Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook and all these platforms all, all day, can you have the awareness to not wake up to them, right? I was just speaking to a journalist and she said, all right, you know, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try to like allow myself to wake up lay in bed for three full minutes before I reach to my phone. Yeah, you you now, refer that, to that as taking charge of your morning, right? Yeah, protecting your morning. Protecting you your wanna, morning. You right. want to come into your, I mean, you know, different but behind different days, different ways, but like that you come into, you. so many of us wake up with so much cortisol rushing through our nervous system. Anyway, many of us don't need more, like you don't want to wake up in that like fight, flight, freeze response every day, if at all possible. So if your life is something where you're not living in that everyday trauma and you're not waking up to that fight, flight, freeze response, but then you're, you're bringing it in by through social media or through the news. So if the first thing you, if the last thing you do before you drift off at night, and then the first thing you do in the morning is you're enraged and you're terrified and you're despairing. 
I mean, how, how, how little amount of time has to pass just before your nervous system collapses under the weight of that. Right. Okay. So that now some people might say, well, that's checking out. And then you say, all right, well, I, I do that for three minutes and that's going to help me sustain through the day. Right. Um, and then there's the other piece that we talk about is whatever you're participating in. Again, yes, like you're saying, you want to do it intentionally. So if you want to hunker down and watch, you know, Game of Thrones for six hours, or if you like just can't wait to do that Fortnite weekend or watch everything Shonda Rhimes has created, what you want to be able to track, here's me going to this place and you're doing it without guilt and you're doing, I mean, as long as, you know, mass neglect isn't happening around you, but you're, you're <laughs> right. doing it intentionally. You're not, you're not, I talk about this with adults and I work with a lot of adolescents and we talk about this too, where sometimes you can get so into that place where you're like, ah, the Netflix auto reload. I don't, I don't know how to press pause. Here's me on my eighth season again. Right. So I think there's a huge difference between like, I'm just, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a moment here. Right. And I encourage people, you don't want to get caught up on the language. Like, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of fields I work in. I never, I never use the term self-care because so many people that get their backup around that or their association of it is, is very, very weighted. So kind of, I don't care what you call it, but in terms of most of my orientation, when I work with folks is just, how can we help you literally stay alive? Right. Like how, how can we, and, and, and with so many people, their health breaking down, rising suicide rates in many of the fields I work in. Right. And then there's folks who are staying alive and just our quality of life is so, is so not what it could be. And so I think that whole piece of however, whatever language you want to use, but just don't, we don't want to get caught in somebody just being like, Oh, self-care is because you had some bad self-care training 12 years ago. Right. And, and what we're talking about here is really how, how are you going to stay alive? How are you going to work for some preservation here? And again, how are you going to do no harm? Because you and I could be out there thinking, here's us working for liberation. And we could be such messes that everywhere we go, we're just spewing toxicity. And at that point, we're causing harm. Right. We're, we're closing the subway door on people, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So just in, and I, I kind of want to bring this all around to a very real life example here. One of the things that is coming up this week is the hearings to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is a tough one for a lot of progressives uh, because Kavanaugh is expected to be the deciding vote to roll back things like a woman's right to choose, yeah. LGBTQ rights, voter rights, the ACA. It's a lifetime appointment, and uh, the chances of stopping this at this point are admittedly pretty slim, yeah. and that's causing right. a lot of people to feel despondent and helpless and right. powerless and overwhelmed. How would you counsel activists here? A lot of what I try to remind folks is having your big feelings, you know, raging, grieving, mourning. So feeling deeply, and re- remember, we want to be very responsible with the actions around our feelings. So if I'm in a state of rage, I get to do that at the boxing gym. I don't get to do that when I'm driving down the freeway and I don't get to do that when I'm trying to parent and I don't get to just be an awful person in a restaurant. Right. So you want to like, here's my feelings and here's how I'm going to direct them constructively, productively, or at least in a way that's not going to cause any harm. And then I think being very discerning about where right now, where where can my efforts, what can I do, you know, agency wise here? Where can my efforts be best spent? What is in my immediate realm? Right. Like, should I return this phone call for my brother in law who I haven't called back? 
right? Is there a neighbor who's struggling and I could go be of help there, right? Is there something local I could do that would be really, really meaningful for the Boys and Girls Club? So take action where you can, where it's effective. Yeah, and continue to interrupt this place of powerlessness that many of us, you, you, again, when our systems get that maxed out, we can just go to a place of like, what, what am I going to do? I mean, look, the straw ban is a, is a good example of this with the, the plastic consumption and how the plastics are polluting so many things and the seabirds and the albatross and all that. And for so long, you would talk to people about this and you could see them disassociate. Right. Right. And then you have like, you know, random people like me, because I've learned from Chris Jordan and other wonderful activists out there like, hey, do what you can. Stop using plastic bags and stop using straws and all this stuff. So I'm the person with my kids. I'm like, we can't use any straws. And my kids are like, oh, my God, you are so unhinged. And now <laughs> 2018, September, there are straw bans. In, literally, you can't get straws anymore in so many places. There was a time that many of us would be like, what can I do? How am I going to help the albatross? How am I going to help the seabirds? How am I going to help the ocean and the coral reefs and all of this stuff? And you couldn't think of anything. And then some people were like, well, try to do this small thing. And then you did it. And then some things shifted. Okay. So I do think being able to, it, it's not all, you know, how can I tend to my local center here, even while all of this just unbelievable suffering is being put on people out there. But you do what you can for that suffering, right, while also doing something that interrupts your powerless and where you can actually affect change here. You know, if you have a mayor who you really appreciate your mayor, what what can you do there? What can you do for any of your the local piece as well? Yeah. Because part of it is us having to reframe every day. Like, how am I going to get out of bed every day? Which is a real struggle for a lot of people. How am I going to get out of bed every day? Right. How am I going to not cause harm and how am I going to contribute skillfully? And so I think being able to kind of run through those, run through those pieces and then anything you can pull in and commit to daily that that helps you get out of bed you know, not contribute to the problem here and then and then contribute skillfully wherever you can. Well, I think that's a great place to to wrap it up. The book is The Age of Overwhelm Strategies for the Long Haul on Barrett Kohler Books. I should also mention that you're going to be appearing at Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle on Saturday, September 8th. Uh, but Laura Vandernut Lipsky, thank you so much. Thank you. Really, thank you. I mean, thank you for you and thank you for your comrades and thank you for everything Indivisible's doing. And um, I am so grateful and any anything I can do that might be of future help, I avail myself. Next, we have our weekly calls to action with Indivisible Washington's 8th District Research Team Leader, Stephen Wilhelm. Hello, Stephen. Hey, good morning, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, man. Uh, okay, so as we know, the Kavanaugh hearings are underway this week. So uh, first order of business is to keep calling each of our senators to vote no. And, of course, you can sign up to call or text fellow progressives in states with undecided senators and ask them to pressure their senators to vote no. And I will have links for all of that at indivisiblepodcast.org. But uh, next, we... We've talked a lot on this show about the regressive nature of Washington's tax structure. And on September 10th, people are going to have a chance to do something about it. So tell us what's happening there. Yeah, I was really uh, quite um, pleased that one of our uh, research team members was looking into, um, as you said, Washington's regressive tax policy. And she came across this opportunity to um, actually make a difference. You know, it's kind of like everybody talks about weather and taxes, but you can't do anything about it. Right. Well, well, here is an opportunity that, that uh, you, we can do something about it. Um, 
the uh, tax policy working group is uh, meeting in Seattle on September 10th. And they, uh, the agenda for that meeting is for uh, the staff to give a briefing, for there to be some small group discussion and report out, and then um, to take some public uh, testimony. So uh, folks that are really um, energized and engaged on uh, improving the, um, the tax policy in, in Washington can participate. You know, just a couple of uh, fun facts. Um, you know, because we rely so heavily on sales and property taxes in, in Washington to um, fund our services like uh, public schools. Um, it means that uh, families in middle class um, pay as much as seven times uh, the rate of the wealthiest uh, residents in Washington. And Washington, believe it or not, I, I was surprised to learn this, has over 700 tax breaks, more than any other state other than New York, New York State. And those tax breaks give uh, $30 billion a year in, in breaks to uh, businesses, which and in my mind, is kind of corporate welfare. So if that's something that uh, energizes your listeners, I would really encourage them to um, RSVP, um, the House uh, uh, Tax Policy Working Group. I think you can put a, a hyperlink in your show notes to uh, RSVP. And I would really encourage them to um, go down, participate in that, in that meeting, and uh, to give testimony if they're moved. Yeah, a uh, frequent guest on the show, Summer Stinson of Washington's Paramount Duty, uh, has has said that Washington has the most regressive tax structure in the country. So this is definitely something that is of, of you know of interest to a lot of people, and this is an opportunity to speak out. I will mention that this again is on September 10th at the Washington State Convention Center in Seattle, and of course, uh, as I said, we will have uh, links to everything, including a link to what Stephen just talked about. Also of significance uh, is. Is a call to submit comments to the Bureau of Land Management about Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke's plans to sell off some of our national monuments. What is the latest here on this story, and what can we be doing? Yeah, that we uh, we got a really good opportunity to make a difference on this. The, your listeners may recall that there was some. Uh, widespread information in the press recently. Uh, they may recall that uh, the secretary had said that he wasn't planning to um, sell the public lands when they – remember there was a big fuss about reducing the size of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, a couple yep. of national monuments in Utah. Um, and But no, no, don't worry about it. We don't plan to sell off any of those lands. Ha! Psych. Um, actually, now <laughs> the interior has proposed. Did you say to, psych? Um, sell off. <laughs> yes. Psych. Nice. Okay. <laughs> um, to to sell off up to uh, 1,600 acres inside the formerly protected area of Grand Scare- Staircase Escalante. Fortunately, there's there's something we can do other than just rail about it. Um, even in the Trump administration, there are certain rules they have to follow. And one of the things that uh, the government has to do when they plan to make changes like this is they have to um, collect information from the government. And, you know, those of us who have, have worked with, um, you know, even at Boeing, where I used to work, uh, making comments on proposed federal regulations was a big deal, and, and the government really had to listen to that. And they've got a great process for collecting that information. So if people will go to the Bureau of Land Management's um, website for um, collecting comments on uh, whether they should or shouldn't change the rules that would potentially, uh, we, we won't sell the land. Well, they're changing the rules to potentially. 
eventually sell the land. They can uh, make some specific comments um, about why they feel um, it shouldn't shouldn't be allowed. Um, and uh, just I'll throw out a couple of things for folks to consider. But um, so this protected area, I didn't realize um, th- th- there's a lot of natural history, um, you know, both fossils and uh, Native American uh, history in these areas that, that um, the rules change would just allow people to come in and exploit the nat- natural resources. And, and the vast majority, you know, 91 percent wouldn't be protected from things like coal mining, 99 percent. Um, wouldn't be protected from from a- any kind of mining, so, so it's really throwing this formerly protected beautiful land um, open to all kinds of exploitations of natural resources. So if listeners are really energized about the environment, this is a really great opportunity to make a difference. The government has to review these comments, so you know it takes some time to look at them, and you know kind of like calling your senator, you can kind of gum up the works by um, you know, providing a lot of comments that the government has to churn through and consider before they change the rules. Yeah, I mean, the, what they have planned, I, I believe, uh, is is a grave concern to a lot of people. And uh, we will definitely have a link to the comment section for the Bureau of Land Management. So uh, that's something that you can avail yourself of on the website as well. And then finally, speaking of issues related to the environment, we have a call to oppose a House Resolution 4606 that would likely accelerate greenhouse gas emissions. So tell us about that. Bet. Um, and again, you know, this may not be everybody's cup of tea, but certainly for folks that are um, really focused on the environment or on public health, um, this may be something that they want to weigh in on and give their representative a call and let them know that you would like your representative to vote against HR 4606, which is titled Ensuring Small Scale LNG Certainty and Access Act who comes up with these titles. Hmm. But fundamentally what this is, is this is um, the Republicans are trying to codify a regulation. You know, the Trump administration, they love to put out all these regulations that reduce, uh, sorry, change regulations that, that reduce protection of, um, you know, the public. And so in this case, they put out a regulation and this, this law would make it this legislation would make it law that would exempt up to 140 million cubic feet per day of liquefied natural gas exports. And, uh, you know, I was a little curious about what that number meant, so I, I looked it up a little bit. Um, so your average liquefied natural gas tanker, average, the big ones, are up to three football fields long and, and 150 feet wide, half a football field wide. Wow. And they only carry about 6 million cubic feet. So what this is proposing to do is to allow up to 20 um, liquefied natural gas tankers more than, than are currently allowed um, to go ahead and make those experts without any regulation, no environmental impact statement, no studies, no determination if this increased export of uh, petroleum product is going to affect climate, what's it going to do about the price of um, liquefied natural gas in the United States, what's the health impact of um, the, the additional burning of, of fossil fuels. Um, it, it's, it's not going to allow, um, it's not going to do any of that. It's going to allow all of this export, 20 tankers per day, every day, of additional exports without any regulation whatsoever. 
So this could potentially lead to higher domestic fuel prices, adverse public health consequences, and, and definitely um, worsening uh, climate impact. Yeah. Um, when the, when the uh, Democrats were looking at this, <laughs> I, this is one of my favorite phrases. They, uh, this is a, pro- a problem, a, a problem, a solution in search of a problem. This is a bill in search of a problem. Right. It would prematurely um, ensh- enshrine these pro fossil fuel rules, um, and approving another bill to expand natural gas resources would uh, um, cause more fossil fuel extraction, higher domestic natural gas prices, and have serious climate, public health. And economic consequences. So I think if you're really concerned about any of those things, this would be a great bill to call your representative and say, please vote no. Right. This is one of those instances in which voting no amounts to pushing back against one of the many rollbacks that, as you say, the Trump administration loves, uh, particularly around the environment. Well, that'll do it for this week. Uh, Stephen, thank you as always, and we'll talk to you next week, man. Sounds good. Thanks, Stephen. And finally this week, as the midterm approaches, progressives across the country are finding creative ways to help and raise money for candidates. And so in the Bay Area, a group called Rocket Boom 10 Productions is staging a reading of the David Mamet play November. And they're doing this as a fundraiser, first on Saturday, September 8th for the Andrew Jans campaign. Jans, of course, is running to unseat Devin Nunes in California's 22nd. And then they are doing a production on September 15th. And that night will be in support of Our Revolution, a political action group supporting progressive Democrats in the November midterm. And joining us to talk about this are my friend Leanne Rumble and Stephen Dietz, both of whom will star uh, in the production. And Stephen is directing, Leanne is producing. Leanne and Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Well, so talk a little bit about where the idea came from to do this as a political fundraiser. Uh, I know that this is your production company, Leanne. So uh, talk about where the idea came from. Sure. Uh, well, I was very angry about just you know the news every day it just doesn't stop and you know i wanted to contribute in a larger way and at at that time too i was very roiled about the fact that he was trump was starting to pull funding from uh, the nea national national endowment of the arts and so i thought instead of just going on social media and feeling in some ways that i'm just screaming into a vacuum Mm. i said how can i how can I contribute to this in a more meaningful way? How can I be part of the change? And you know, the, the adage of "be the change you wish to see." Sure. So, I, I, I was I was uh, starting to brainstorm some ideas, and I had done this play with Stephen back in 2010. Uh, we had done it in Marin at the uh, at the Ross Valley Players, and it was very successful. Right. Yeah. And then you uh, hit upon the idea of restaging this now as a uh, political fundraiser. Yeah. And everyone said, what a great idea. That's a wonderful idea. What a wonderful way to raise money. And so after everything that came together, I started to think about the different candidates and people and and groups maybe that I wanted to support. Yeah, and I want to talk about the candidate and the group that you have uh, selected. But Stephen, let's bring you in to talk about the play a little bit, because most of us are familiar with David Mamet, but maybe not this play November. So uh, tell us a little bit more about the play. Well, the play, it it premiered in 2008 in January in New York, and it's a play about a president who is trying to run for his second term, and the party has basically abandoned him. 
and one of the I think I think the line that expresses it the best is when he asks his uh, friend Archer, "What is it about me that people don't like?" The answer is that you're still here. <laughs> and uh, this particular character is not well liked by the public, uh, and even the party's abandoning him, seeing that uh, it's just not going to work out. He's not going to be able to get the money together to do this. So he rather creatively finagles some things and manages to get a great deal of money by blackmailing people. And uh, and the play shows what occurs after that. Much of the dialogue and much of the humor in it is very timely. Yeah, well, for sure. Well, so as I say, um, the first production that you're doing on the 8th is going to benefit Andrew Jans, and you're staging the production in Marin County, and Marin's pretty blue, and the representative there, Jared Huffman, isn't expected to face much of a challenge for his reelection. and so you chose to go outside of your district to do a fundraiser, and I'm curious, Liam, why specifically did you choose to support Andrew Jans? Well, there's actually, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I had originally wanted to support Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and I was told by a lot of people, advisors, they're pretty safe, Leanne. I said, okay. I started to look around and I asked and got some advisement from people about, well, who else? So I did settle. I was, we were a go with Claire McCaskill and Beto O'Rourke. Unfortunately, and I understand that California is a bit of a dirty word right now uh, to the rest of the country because, you know, we elitists out here on the West Coast that they think. (laughs) So they unfortunately backed away from our fundraiser. So with that said, I started to then my search started again and I decided to uh, work with our revolution and they were extremely excited to work with us on this and said, what a wonderful idea. That's it's something that no one's ever done before is you're kind of a fundraiser. And Andrew Jans's campaign has been just so enthusiastic and so wonderful to us and just you know, in contact, anything we need. It's been great to have a, a rather close working relationship with these two groups who are very enthusiastic about our help. And of course, Andrew Jans is in California. So that's uh, that makes a difference as well. So you're asking for the tickets are going to be $10, but you're asking for a $40 donation for Andrew Jans, which will be submitted through Act Blue. Uh, Leanne, I know you have a goal of raising $5,000 each night. Uh, the productions, as I say, are going to be happening in Marin County. But if people cannot make it there in person, there's uh, going to be a way to donate. And we'll have links for that for people at IndivisiblePodcast.org. But just in terms of the productions themselves, where can people go to learn more so what you can do the easiest way right now um i think to find us the simplest and least complicated way is to go to facebook and put in hashtag november is coming we have a public group feel free join us Uh, also i have two event pages one for september 8th and the other for september the 15th Um, there are direct links for tickets on there through brown paper tickets Um, i'm also going to on the day of each of the performances i'm going to also put those links to each of the campaigns the donation for the campaigns on those uh, two event pages as well but in the meantime what i will give to you is those special links and to where people can donate um, for Andrew Jans and for our revolution that is linked to our events. 
Well, this is, as I said, this is a really great and creative way to fundraise. And, uh, you know, as a, a former theater kid and, and Leanne, you and I go back uh, a ways in the, in the, in the theater world. <laughs> uh, I can certainly appreciate everything that you guys are doing. So I want to say thanks so much for, for doing this and letting us know about it. Leanne Rumble and Stephen Dietz, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Stefan. And that's going to do it for this week's show, gang. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Please keep the emails coming. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thanks again to my guests, Laura Vandernut Lipsky, Leanne Rumble, and Stephen Dietz. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Wilhelm. Special thanks this week to Renee Sundberg and an extra special shout-out to Lori Colwell, my wife and partner in crime for 20 years. Happy anniversary, honey. And of course, thanks as always to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.